Talking Kayfabe with Baldrin and or Barry. Barry, are you still with us, or did I have John McAdam join us this week? No, I think that was a stick-to-wrestling appearance that I, <clears throat> I recently recorded. I'm you know, not going to put myself over too much there, Barry. So, how you doing, my man? I'm are you? Good. Wait a minute. What am I talking about? You are in Lutz, Florida, feet on I the ground. Gonna, I was going to say, we are recording this episode, but Jeff, I got to tell you, I have a view for the first time ever. This would be the ninth time I have stayed at this hotel I have a fifth floor view of the swimming pool and I am facing out. I am looking at the beautiful city of Lutz. And I got to tell you, Jeff, not a cloud in the sky. I believe it was about uh, 88 degrees today. I know you love the heat and the warmth. Oh, yeah. That's what I want uh, to be part of, especially yeah. the humidity. Yeah. Oh, pure. I, w- I sat out by the pool, and I got to tell you, as I get older, this gets a lot more difficult. And I sat out by the pool, and within five minutes, I was completely drenched, stifling heat. And then I went into what, what I guess is officially the Shard Johnson swimming pool at this stage. Did you uh, Did you cut a shard while you were in there? <laughs> no comment on this particular episode of Breaking Kayfabe with Bowdrin and Barry, our match of the week. Oh, Barry, as we discuss, uh, it is a special one because it's one I was at live. What? We are going to December 11th, 1987 in Budokan Hall in Tokyo, Japan, as Janichiro Tenru and Ashurahara take on Stan the Lariat Hansen and Terry Bam Bam Gordy. And it's the finals of the All Japan Tag Team Tournament that they used to run every single year. We're going to talk about that. We are going to be offering up our thoughts on the recent CWF Vice episode on Tales of the Territory. We're going to be talking about guys who did or did not reach their full potential as pro wrestlers. And then guys on the flip side that maxed out their potential. All this plus more. Barry Rose. So, before we go to our match of the week, I'm going to throw a little something as a surprise at Barry. Right. Barry, we only have one single Florida Man story, and then we have an update on a recent Florida Man oh. story. So are you ready for our very singular Florida Man or not story? I don't know because I don't well, know no, how to react. No, no, you're going to be ready, mister. Oh, I'm going <laughs> oh, to God, request. you're going to be ready. This was not a request, is what you're saying. No, no, this I is, can uh, talk to you any damn well. I, I, all right. All right, let's hear it. The headline reads, man eh, eh. <clears throat> threatens to skin deputy alive, claims there was paranormal activity involved. Man claimed he was cursed during a traffic stop. On October 23rd, deputies saw a vehicle driving uh, with its hazard lights on and both driver's side tires appearing to be deflated. Deputies conducted a traffic stop and noticed that the tires were not only deflated, but that he was driving on what remained of the rim. Deputies also noticed, Barry, you're going to be shocked to hear this, that the defendant appeared to be impaired. Oh, I know it's a stunner. So uh, when asked about the damage to the vehicle, the driver said someone had put a curse on him and that he hit a curb a little too hard. Deputies then asked him to exit the vehicle, noticing that he was unsteady when doing so. They asked him to perform the old field sobriety uh, exercises he initially declined while cursing, using insults, and informing the deputy that the damage to his car was paranormal activity. Eventually, he changed his mind, decided to participate in the exercises. They said they began giving him instructions. He told the deputy he was going to break the deputy's head with a baseball bat and skin the deputy alive. I'm just going to point this out. Police, generally speaking, they don't like you to mention that the, you want to skin them alive. I'm just going to point that out. So this continued to be an issue and eventually led to his arrest. While searching him, he spit in the deputy's face, lovely, and began to spout threats. He then de- began to grab the deputy's taser in an attempt to unholster it, but was unsuccessful. Again, I will point out that this is not something that deputies tend to look on uh, you know, favorably. Deputies said, uh, that he had to be picked up and placed in the back of the patrol vehicle where he kicked it uh, at it and struck both deputies. He then continued to spit all over the back of the deputy's vehicle. After arriving, this is, I had to close it out with this little comment, Barry. After arriving at the jail, he refused to submit to a breath test, stating to the deputies, quote, I got your test right here. Ah, <laughs> oh, that's good stuff. Barry Rose, Florida man or not. He's got a great sense of humor. I'm good. <laughs> exactly. 
<laughs> I'm going to say he is not. I'm going to say he's somewhere more in the Northeast. That's my guess. Marion County, Florida. Uh, I wouldn't have guessed that. Yeah. yeah so uh, that's uh, I just I love that. I got your test. Right Where's here. Marion County? Where is I, I, uh, I didn't know there'd be a geography uh, question on the. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it was on the notes, Jeff, earlier. Exactly. I was, exactly. Yeah. So now, Mary. Uh, Rectal exam and, and ger- geography exam. Yes, but yes. yeah. So uh, no lube. Uh, now, Barry Rose, <laughs> we in fact have an update on a recent Florida man or not story. Oh, Barry, do you remember recently we mentioned the woman who claimed that she had been arrested for being, quote, too good looking? I do. Yes, the woman whose name was Hind Mustami apparently has been arrested. Now, again, Barry, I will point out that this is not something, uh, that we, we, uh, encourage talk about. No, no, because uh, there there is involves death. But because this is an update on the story about her claiming she was too good looking, she apparently has been arrested for, quote, stabbing her mother to death. Uh, Oh, my God, I saw this. Uh, Actually, somebody sent it to me and they said, didn't you guys just do a story on this person? And I said, yes, we did. Uh, Recently, uh, apparently police were called to the home. They found her mom had been murdered to death. Apparently, the mom had called police on more than one occasion, stating that she f- was in fear of her daughter. Well, apparently those fears were, uh, were well thought of and well-grounded because, yep, uh, mom is now dead, and this woman, uh, who is too good-looking to be arrested, has in fact been arrested and soon will be too good-looking for jail, Barry. Oh, yeah, too good-looking for jail. That is right uh, there. true. <laughs> I do, and I uh, she's going to have, and I'll tell you what, she is, uh, there is certain, there's, some photos she's really attractive other photos not quite as uh at that same level but she is a good looking woman and and when i read this story uh about her killing her mom and she was very i forget the details but i want to say it was very nonchalant she's like oh i i my mother's dead it was like that kind of a conversation when she called 911 or something cuz she actually called the cops and said her mother was dead very bizarre. She is attractive. It, it's nice too when you stop and think about it that we can get updates on our. <laughs> yeah, on, it's, very, you know, it's very pleasant of the. Uh, it really is. It's considerate. Uh, it's, yes, you know, yes, getting yes. these updates means a lot. So yeah, it's. <laughs> so now, Barry, why don't we discuss our match of the week? All right, Barry. Time for a little match of the week discussion here. We are going the rings of all japan wrestling it is the tag tournament finals from december 11th 1987 as jinichiro tenru and ashura hara take on stan hansen and terry bam bam gordy barry ask me why this particular match is different than some of the other matches of the week that we've discussed jeff why is this match that we've discussed uh, or never discussed? Why is this different than the matches that we've discussed previously? That's a very good question. Thank you for right. calling from outer space. Uh, apparently, sure. I don't know what you were doing there with your voice. This match is different because Barry, I was not only there, I was sitting ringside. What? And what was cool about this was uh, there is a moment in the match, I will say, uh, about the 15 and a half minute match. When uh, wherever the camera angle is shooting in and about the second or third row, you actually see the melts sitting there uh, where I would have been. But, of course, one of the things that was incredibly unique about this experience is I had my trusty Kodak Instamatic. Oh, and I was allowed. Well, I should say I don't know if I was allowed, but I did to walk down to ringside during the match and take photos of the match with my uh, exclusive uh, Kodak Instamatic. Of course, it's uh, the standard bearer of all cameras, as you know. So that's what made looking back at this match extra fun. Barry, you've had a chance to watch this. Tell the folks whether you like this match and whether you think it is still a top 100 of the decade match. Well, we're not just going to gloss over some of those details right well, now, Jeff. Yeah. So, <laughs> so, Was I name-dropping there? Maybe. Well, so. maybe. Yeah, it's okay. So whatever happened to said photos taken with the Instamatic? Let's just say that the uh, the photo that adorns uh, this particular episode will be courtesy. Uh, in, in fact, it will not be credited to anyone but me, because we know some people are very, very fussy, Barry, about getting the proper credit for their photos. They are. They are. So that that's interesting. That first off, that's a, it's great that you still have them. So 
for the uninitiated that have never sat next to the melts at a live wrestling show, and I, I think a couple of our California listeners have, uh, or at least have interacted with him at his show. You though, you had a really good relationship with Dave back in the eighties, uh, and going into the nineties. So sitting next to him at a, and you're, you're seeing what is a fantastic match, obviously. What kind of knowledge or what kind of conversation does Dave, uh, impart upon you? Well, even then, 1987, Dave told me, he said, you know, Jeff, I'm going to tell you that as I look into the future, I don't know, 30 plus years, there's going to be this company that's started by a guy that buys tapes from you. Anyway, I was like a little AEW joke. Uh, so I got it. Thank you. I appreciate at least one person getting that joke. Sure. Um, you know, the one thing I remember is he kept very uh, copious notes. He has really, like a lot of journalism uh, type of people, horrible handwriting. He writes really small. Uh, I know that, uh, you know, I, I don't know if during the match itself he was extremely conversational, unless there was like a big move or a big spot. And then he would he would say like, oh, wow, that was awesome or, you know, something like that. Uh, and then like when we would, you know, be leaving the arena and we'd be on a, a train or or taking a cab somewhere. Then, of course, he would give his thoughts on uh, different matches or different things that happen on the card. I don't necessarily remember him being conversational, though, during the match, because I think, you know, he was he was taking uh, copious notes and he wanted to, you know, remember some very specific things. So uh, I, I think that would pretty much be the answer to the question, though. Gotcha. OK, yeah. Uh, so I like that. So th- this match, it was a good match. There are moments in this match absolutely it's absolutely deserved of a top 100 slot but then there's the flip side Jeff and I I gotta say it's not that there's anything bad here that I think prevents it what I think is I mean this match uh, this match literally goes 28 minutes I mean we know that for a fact right (laughs) like based off the ending this match is a little over 28 minutes and I, I, I get the finish and it was clear, especially in hindsight, now that I'm looking at it and I, okay. So spoiler alert, I'm going to tell you exactly the details and I'll let Jeff really flesh this out. But this match goes 28 minutes and I would say every single person watching this match and, and I'll be curious to get your thoughts on this. In my mind, this match is going to be a draw. This is headed to a draw. They pull it out, and then literally with 90 seconds left, it goes to a double countout. So I I don't love the ending of the match, and I think I think if this match was 10 minutes shorter, maybe it was 18 minutes, maybe it's 16, 17 minutes, I think I would have liked it even more. What happens is there there's some there's some moments, there's some pauses in the match. Uh, and I think if they had, you know, for lack of a better term, if they had trimmed the fat just a little bit, taken off five to ten minutes, I think this match would have at least now would have ranked a little bit higher with me. You still get all your great spots. Uh, fucking Hansen is unbelievable. There's a point here where he's treating Tenru's head like a basketball and he's on the table and he's just attacking the cut. Uh, it, it, there's just so much going on. And then Tenru too. And it, you know, it's great to see Hanson. He looks great. Hanson looks like a, a kindly old, uh, Texas grandfather at this point, which I think is what he is. But then you see Tenru and Tenru, he's walked with a back brace for years, two, two canes. Uh, sometimes I know he's in a wheelchair, which really sucks, but, uh, you know, Tenru laid it out, but, uh, Tenru is, uh, just, beating the shit out of Hanson at one point. The cowbell gets involved. Uh, it's just, it's a fun match. And I, to me, it's kind of like the open and close, the beginning and end of the match are really so exciting, but there is a bit of a lull in the center of the match that I think brings it down just a little bit. Ashura Hara too. We had, we had talked about Hara and Yatsu. I'll say a month or so ago. And if I'm correct, Hara has since passed on. I believe Hara, I wasn't aware at the time that he had been, uh, 
working the IWE during our conversation, but I like horror. You know, he's not that flashy. Uh, he, he's not a Tenru. He, he's not a Jumbo Sharuda. He's not a Hanson, but he was a solid guy and he kind of gave this impression like he was a legit tough guy not like a badass either not like a guy going out there but just a guy that you weren't going to fuck around with this guy this guy was tough so uh i i do like this match even with those criticisms if i was rating this on the melter scale of one to five stars or i guess it's the norman dooley scale right uh i would go probably three and a half to four at most but uh, I think it's still a, a very good match, though, Jeff. My question to you, and certainly you're going to have a great review of this being there, when you've watched this match, I'm assuming it's very different live than it was to see it on video, right? Oh, of course, yeah. Yeah. So if I, I was sitting there while you were talking about Ashurahara trying to come up with a comparison, uh, and the, at first I was thinking of a guy like Ronnie Garvin, but then I realized, you know, Ronnie Garvin was, uh, you know, for whether you believe he deserved it or not, was a guy that ended up getting the NWA strap. And then I started thinking that maybe a better comparison would be, uh, Tomohiro Ishii. There you uh, go. And because yeah. the same kind of like just a tough, <laughs> badass guy never really was at the top of the card. But he was going to always give you uh, his best. He never, like, just went out there and went through the motions and had a bit of a bully uh, persona slash rep. And that's what he presented in the ring. Now, uh, first of all, you're certainly allowed to uh, say that this is not a top 100 match if you like. I mean, you know, it's, it, everything is your opinion. Let's talk about some other things about the match. I love how... Certain things from the Japanese language do not translate as well as others. Like, so, uh, Tenru's group after he split with Jumbo Saruta, uh, was called the Revolution. Okay. And they, of course, had their, uh, ring jackets made up. So, uh, I think, uh, one of them is wearing, uh, a Revolution and underneath it has a quote that says, catch us if you can. Okay. The other one is wearing a revolution jacket and it says underneath it says, we all want to change the world. <laughs> what the fuck does that exactly mean? I, you know, we I just are of, the world. Yeah, exactly. Yes. And, uh, you know, we are the children. Uh, yes. and then, uh, Terry Gordy coming out, uh, and now he's being pushed as Stan Hansen's a new, newest partner. Uh, let's, uh, you know, honestly at ringside, you see, the framed photo of a uh, bruiser Brody uh, being represented at ringside, uh, who was so important to Hanson's career. And let's be honest to all Japan also. Uh, so they're, they're paying homage to him by having his framed uh, photo uh, sitting at one of the ringside chairs. But then when they come to the ring, Gordy is wearing like this sort of cowhide. Uh, it's not really a jacket. It's like this sort of cloak. And he's got the cowboy hat, and it, it, it's like it kind of struck me as they were presenting him as Cowboy Terry Gordy, which, of course, you know, he did wear hats when he was with the Freebirds, but he was never Cowboy Terry Gordy. So I, I thought that was kind of interesting. His leg is completely wrapped up uh, because, uh, just to remind everybody, it had been probably about a year uh, before this match that he had had uh, the knee injury because of uh, Barry. Do you remember how he injured his knee? Trip back in time here. He injured his knee. Ted DiBiase did something. I know. He was in a car with Buddy Landell. (laughs) Oh, really? Was that? (laughs) Of course. Buddy was involved with everything. And I don't know who was driving, but there was a car. They were in a Corvette. I remember that. There was a car accident, and Terry messed up his knee in the car accident. And he was told, essentially, uh, if you have surgery, you're going to be out, you know, three to six months. And, of course, if you didn't wrestle for three or six months, uh, that meant you weren't getting paid. And so uh, he decided not to have surgery and basically started wrapping his leg up. But literally, you can see his leg is wrapped from like maybe mid, uh, mid, like right above the ankle to like just uh, above the, I mean, like the damn thing is wrapped up like he's, uh, you know, heading out for winter and he didn't have money for pants. Uh, you know, it's just an incredible wrap job. Uh, you can see Terry limping early in the match. 
Uh, obviously his leg was, uh, you know, I want to say that Terry Gordy was never the same after his knee injury, but you know, in the early nineties, when Terry became much for much more, one of the focal points of the singles, uh, ring, uh, in all Japan and sort of went off on his own with, with doc and, and stuff like that. He was having hellacious matches and was still great. He was. But I don't know, you know, the, the Terry Gordy that was like in world class and in the UWF before he injured his knee or his leg. I don't know if that guy was ever really the same. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll leave that to your own interpretation. Um, I believe he was though. And I, I'll tell you, I, I think the difference was, uh, it's kind of like Grant Hill. Let me use a basketball analogy. So Grant Hill, if you remember, and I know that you do, uh, he, he played for the uh, Detroit Pistons. He finally made the playoffs after several years in the NBA. They had not been a good team. And he goes down with this horrific, I guess, ankle and foot injury and decides he's still going to play. And he couldn't, you know, he was hobbling around the court. There was a lot of, uh, you could clearly see he's injured, but he's still coming out trying to make shots. And by doing so, he destroyed his foot to the point that Grant Hill was never the same. He wound up going to Orlando, who signed him, I think, for one of the biggest contracts of all time, at least at that stage, which was probably like 96 or so is my guess, 96, 97. And, uh, Grant Hill was never the same player, but what he did do is he learned how to play a different style game. So he wasn't the same player. He was much more cerebral, much more intelligent, which he was always a bright guy. But I think Gordy too, I think Gordy kind of modified, okay, how am I going to get out there and still do this? Even though I've got this and that knee was fucked for years, right? Like, I mean, that knee is, was wrapped up forever as far as I knew. Uh, but Terry got out there and was still having, as you said, hellacious matches. I think somehow he was able to modify and, and flip the way that he had been working and started working a little differently and I think extended his career. Yeah. And as you, uh, you mentioned the, uh, the shots that these guys were given one another, uh, this was the very earliest stages of what ended up becoming the King's Road style because yeah, I made a notation. Tenor is kicking Stan Hansen. Uh, and it's just like he's punting, uh, yep. like his back, his chest. I mean, he is just laying it in there and it's like, it's like you're, you cringe because you're just like, holy shit. That, that is not being pulled, man. That is a, that is one badass kick. Uh, so the match goes, as Barry says, uh, approximately 28 and a half minutes goes to a double count out. Now to address what Barry said, I will say, first of all, I love when you're watching a match and you assume you know what the finish is. And then the finish that you're assuming is going to happen doesn't happen. Uh, you know, the, the proverbial 60 minute draw that at 59 <coughs> minutes and 45 seconds, all of a sudden there's a, a, a pinfall or a submission. I love that kind of stuff because it kind of swerves you. You know, whose house, Barry? Swerve's house. Thank you very much. Our very first reference to Swerve on this show. So, uh, you know, I like the fact that we thought this was going to be a 30-minute draw. Baba swerves us by uh, making it a double count out. Now, why did Baba do that? Because I will tell you, Giant Baba, better than I'm going to say any promoter in the history of the business, knew how to do a tournament, knew how to bracket it. He yep. kept meticulous uh records and notes uh so that when it came to the final night of the tournament, every match meant something. And you had, say, one team that had 15 points and the other the other team had 14. So the team with 14 absolutely had to score a pinfall to win the tournament as opposed to just going out there and getting DQ'd where each team maybe gets one point. And now all of a sudden, that team that was ahead by one point, they've won because the other team didn't get the two points that they would have gotten from a pinfall or a submission. So I love the fact that Baba kept these meticulous notes, uh, meticulous records on how to do it. And trust me, this was not something that was a fly by my, a fly by night. He did this shit before the tournament started. He knew what the finish was going to be. And that's one thing I really did appreciate about Baba as a promoter. 
that uh, I thought was really great about him. Now, will I say this is a perfect match? No, because I got to be honest with you, as Barry noted, there are some slow spots in this match, uh, particularly like the opening, uh, you know, say, I don't know, 10, 12 minutes of the match, a little bit on the slow going side. But then, Barry, at some point during the match, and I wrote down uh, like with 10 minutes to go, all of a sudden, this thing just kicks into overdrive. And it's like the proverbial roller coaster that's climbing, climbing, climbing. You get to the top, and now you're going downhill, and this is where the fun begins. And holy shit, that last 10 minutes of this match was absolutely epic. These guys, all four of them were doing great stuff. And maybe in hindsight, maybe in my mind, what made this match a top 100 match for the decade of the 1980s is that last 10 minutes of this match. What say you to that, Bear? Yeah, and I, I think that's it. I, the beginning, I, I think the beginning is also, the beginning is five stars. The last, uh, I, I guess roughly 10 minutes is probably five stars. It is that lull. So when you saw this match, uh, in Japan, obviously it made a huge impression on you. Uh, watching the match now, do you think, more importantly, do you think this is a top 100 match? based on the 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 workings in the ring well uh, you know uh i think it i think it would you know we, we talk about how uh I, I only did i only ranked the top 20 matches i didn't rank the, you know 21 to 100 right. now you know we've talked before about well is this a upper if we if we were going to do that would this have been like number 23 or 24 no maybe not uh maybe this would have been you know 80 to 90 somewhere in there but if you say that you thought the beginning of this match was five stars and the end of this match is, I'm going to put words in your mouth here, was close to five stars, even if the middle of this match was two stars, which I don't think it was, but let's do the math. Hold on. All right. Yeah. yeah. You got three goes into 12 (laughs) four times. And and I'm also trying to do math here real quick. I was hoping that you're going to do this. That equals four stars. (laughs) And so, you know, that, that equals a great match and one that I think still deserves snap wants to offer a little scratch here for you on this side. Uh, you know, I I think this equals the top 100 match of the eighties. Is it like one of the top 20? Maybe not, but I think it's it, it belongs, you know, somewhere in this top 100. And it, am I factoring in that I was there at ringside? Does that play a part in this? Absolutely. You know, I, I go back to when uh, someone said to me, well, the reason you had Steamboat and, uh, and Flair from Nashville as your best match of the 80s was you were there. That very well could be. That's a sure. very good point. And maybe the fact that I have this match as compared to all the other matches that I could have had, uh, in the, uh, the top 100, maybe that played a part. That's uh, certainly a valid question. Well, you know, I look at it this way too. Wrestling is very different live than it is when you're watching it, uh, either on television or videotape. That's why Gordon would tell you, you must go out to the matches. Which is very smart to say that because that's where the money was made anyway. So yeah, in the old days, that's exactly, and I don't always feel like TV's like that any longer. And certainly it's a completely different business model, but in the territory days, the television was used to get you to go to the arena and spend your money. I'm assuming now and for the last couple of decades, it's been used to get you to buy the pay-per-view. But, uh, you know, with the WWE, I, I don't fully understand their business model at times, though they're very successful. So uh, they're doing something right. But, yeah, Gordon was on to something back then, Jeff. Yeah. So we will post a link to this match from the 11th of December, 1987 at Venerable Budokan Hall in Tokyo, Japan, as Jinichiro Tenru and Ashurahara taking on Stan the Lariat Hansen and Terry Bam Bam Gordy. So very recently on uh, the Vice Network, they had the look at the old championship wrestling from Florida Circuit with uh, Bob Roop, Steve Kern, Kevin Sullivan, uh, and Brian Blair, uh, amongst others. And it led me to a question, and then uh, I want to address something that uh, I know you haven't watched the episode yet, uh, although you're planning on it. What kind of impact, you know, for the longest time, CWF was the only game in town uh, in the state of Florida 
you know, then the Dolphins came in, but really the Dolphins were the only sort of game in town statewide. But around, uh, oh, I want to say the mid seventies, maybe a couple years before for the NASL, but what sort of impact around Tampa, St. Pete and on the West Coast did the Buccaneers and the Rowdies, because the Tampa Bay Rowdies were really popular. I know that. Yep. What sort of impact did they have on CWF, if any, do you think? So I don't think that there was a negative impact. I think if anything, it was, uh, it was probably a positive impact. But when you started off and you were talking about how it was, uh, essentially the Miami Dolphins from a statewide perspective, you know, it, that was Part of, I think, the attraction of professional wrestling was that uh, certainly college sports was always a big deal. We had the ABA. We had the Miami Floridians for a couple of years in the early 1970s. But professional wrestling and boxing, I should say, as well, both were constants throughout the state. You know, and you could always count on every Wednesday was going to be Miami wrestling, whether it was on the beach or highlight or somewhere else. Monday, West Palm Beach, et cetera. So, you know, that was, I think, part of the reason and part of the attraction for a lot of people, including myself, was I got to go every week. It wasn't something that I got to see once a month or, you know, four times a year. You know, now you look at uh, the big company, which I guess would be the WWE and AEW, and if they come to your town twice a year, it's probably a big deal. I mean, how fucking lucky were we? Miami, on average, was 50 to 51 weeks out of the year that we were seeing live professional wrestling. So it was a big deal. I do think when the Rowdies and the Buccaneers, and I think this was the genius of Eddie Graham, and while I haven't seen the show, I I think it talked about the good and bad of Eddie Graham. And there was good and bad. And uh, I know that there's been some speculation online the last couple of days that I've seen that a lot of his good work, his charity work, was strictly a cover to cover uh, the negative shit that he was doing, et cetera. And but, I'm going to uh, – uh, spoiler sure. alert. I'm going to address that with uh, with something that someone wrote uh, on one of the uh, Facebook uh, pages. Yeah, so, and, uh, and, and it should be written, and, and there's truth. But I will say uh, I, I have firsthand knowledge. These are newspaper reports. Uh, Eddie did do a lot of good, and I, I believe a lot of it, at least at the beginning, was legit, heartfelt that he was trying to make a difference. And Eddie cut his teeth, Eddie Graham cut his teeth working West Texas for Dory Funk Sr. And this is where, you know, Cal Farley had the, uh, the, the, the young, the youth ranch. I don't know what they were calling it, but Eddie essentially was one of the founders of the Florida Sheriff's Boys Ranch. And he worked hand in hand with, uh, the local sheriff's department. And, uh, you know, there, there was an article years ago and I, and Chris Qualman was the one that I had a conversation, the, uh, the barrister, uh, the, the lawyer, the lawyer, Chris Qualman. Uh, who who always manages to never quite make it to the fan fest? That I think he's one? been to two, possibly three. He's bailed on a lot. I tried to get him to the next one, and he's just had, I guess, serious back surgery and is down for the count and in bed for, until the end of the year. But uh, we had a conversation, and uh, there was a point where Eddie Graham had donated X amount of dollars to his old, uh, Chris's old alma mater, which is the University of Florida in Gainesville. And I, I believe it was money and weightlifting equipment. And he literally was donating everything. And I want to say they were even going to call it like the Eddie Graham gymnasium or something like that. And I believe it fell through, but Eddie had actually already donated the money. And maybe, maybe Gainesville got wind of something unsavory. It was like, wait a minute, we can't be a part of that. But that none of that ever really got reported. He did a lot when it came to charity. That I can, uh, you know, and certainly did a lot of other things that weren't charitable. I think when it came to the Rowdies and the Buccaneers, and this is where I was going long-windedly, of course, Eddie was a bright enough guy that if he saw that the Buccaneers were taking off or the Rowdies were taking off and look, the Rowdies did extremely well, 
you know, in, in the area for years, Eddie would try to attach himself to those. You know, it wasn't like, you know, they, that wasn't direct opposition because we know if it was direct opposition and it was another wrestling organization trying to run opposite CWF, Eddie would go in with a vengeance. And I always, I respected that. I got to tell you, I worked for Open Table for almost 11 years and I was critical at times because if we had competition, I, I'm a full, firm believer. Cut the head off the snake before the snake gets too big. Crazy to even think otherwise. And that was the Eddie Graham philosophy. Well, if you were threatening his business, he would go for you. And there were no holds barred with that, Jeff. So I think when he, when it came to the Bucks and the Rowdies, he didn't view it as any form of competition. Certainly you can make a case it's a sports entertainment for your dollar kind of deal, but I don't think that was it. I think he was looking at how he could partner up with them and become even bigger. I, I think my, my question is more how did it affect, if at all, the uh the ticket buying public like did they see a uh any sort of decline in ticket sales in that area because let's face it you know it's all about that you know competition and all about the dollar that you want to spend whether sure. it's to go to wrestling whether to, to go to a buccaneers game whether it's to go to a, a rowdies game who you know whoever or whatever you want to see there's always that competition and they didn't have any competition before the Rowdies became very popular, before the Buccaneers uh, were part of the expansion of the NFL. So when those two uh, teams became one, you know, suddenly successful, the other one uh, now offering the NFL product to the Tampa Bay area fan, did it affect attendance at wrestling or was those those things completely separate from one another? And like the wrestling fan maybe uh, wasn't as interested and, uh, you know, going to see the Bucks or the Rowdies, or was it the Bucks and Rowdies fans weren't necessarily wrestling fans to begin with anyway? What do you think? I think it's a combination of all that. What year did the, uh, did the Bucks come to Tampa? Yeah, I want to say 76. So you can make a case for 76, though I think it was 75 was a, like an oil embargo. So, you know, gas prices actually, <laughs> let me just, just as now gas prices, they went from like 33 cents all the way up to 60 cents. A yeah, exactly. That's terrible. a big deal, right? But <laughs> when that kind of shit occurred, that actually hurt uh, professional wrestling a lot. I don't think, and I, I look back at 76, the 70s were a great era for CWF, and they had one of their biggest years would have been 81 through 83, which was actually like two and a half years, but they actually did extremely well. They, they drew some big numbers there. I don't think it, it truly did affect, but I think a lot of people were supporting both. And look, if you're in Tampa and you're going to see the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, odds are you're going on a Sunday. Tampa was, you know, as we know, Tampa was Tuesday night and Wednesday morning for TV. So you could conceivably do both. And, yeah, again, professional wrestling, and I realize, you know, there, there's going to be a monetary change, but professional wrestling, I think top tickets back in those days on a Tuesday night were five and six dollars. TV was about a dollar, dollar fifty, something like that. So it's not that it's going to kill you from, you know, from going to see a Bucks game or a Rowdy's game either. So one of the things that was addressed on the, uh, on the Vice episode. Uh, in the roundtable discussion there was, uh, and it's something that quite honestly we've discussed here on this show when we had Bob Roop as a guest, uh, was Eddie's policy of, uh, when fans would come down and decide they wanted to be in the wrestling business that, uh, Eddie would basically, uh, you know, kind of put him through the ringer there. And, uh, he wanted to put him in the ring and have the boys show him, uh, what the wrestling business was all about. And, uh, there were a lot of guys that uh, found out exactly what the wrestling business is all about. And on that note, Bob McKeon, our old friend, uh, posted something uh, in the CWF Wrestling uh, from Florida archives, you know, about his thoughts about what he thought of the show and ask other people what they thought. And uh, and Larry Hamill uh, commented, and I want to read Larry's comments, and then I want to discuss what Larry said with you. Larry said, how exactly could Eddie Graham's actions be rationalized under the guise of protecting the business? Championship Wrestling from Florida advertised in its program, sold it to matches, that it had a program in which interested people could train to be professional wrestlers. Then when these guys showed up at the sportatorium with the hopes of being trained and were coerced into signing a waiver 
Graham instructed his pro wrestlers to physically abuse them, and Eddie himself would cheap shot them on the way out. This egregious policy has been detailed in multiple interviews by multiple wrestlers over the years. The key element here was that CWF recruited these guys through program ads. Given Graham's actions here, it easily could be argued that all of his, quote, good work, unquote, in the community was simply a part of the intrinsic con game that was the kayfabe era of pro wrestling done as a means to influence public opinion and to stay on the good side of public officials who might otherwise take a hard look at what, frankly, was a dirty business. So I think that was a pretty interesting comment from Larry. So, Barry, what do you think about what Larry said? So it 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 is, and we should, uh, you know, Eddie Graham at this point, whether you watch the show or not, I think his flaws as a human being have been well documented. Can you, it, you know, how do you rationalize it protecting the business? Because it was the 1970s. Again, I, I think if you look at this with a mindset of, uh, of somebody who's, you know, look, it, it's not the 1970s. If our minds were what they were in the 70s, protecting the business for professional wrestling was first and foremost. And that was done, uh, because that was the livelihood. Everybody was making their money by doing that. We exposed the business. We stopped making money. We stopped doing it. I do think what Larry's trying to get at is is that how do you actually rationalize what Eddie did and and how do you put that underneath the umbrella of protecting the business when on the surface it doesn't sound like that. It sounds like he was getting his jollies and torturing people. This is now who told this story? Was this was this Roop that told this story? Because uh, well, it was Roop and Kern. I mean, all the guys there were talking about, you know, one thing that they didn't mention, Jerry Briscoe was the other guy that was at the round table. I forgot about Jerry. Sure. Uh, but, you know, one thing they didn't mention was, uh, and I think it again is something that we have discussed is that Jack, uh, Briscoe really wanted no part of this. Uh, he did not want to be like, uh, Eddie's enforcer. At least uh, maybe I'm wrong. Isn't that? The, the case fair. He was vocal about it. So as it goes, Jack and Jerry wanted nothing to do with it. Ron Fuller has talked about witnessing this. We don't know if that's legit or not, but he's talked about seeing it. But Bob Roop and Hiro Matsuda were known as the two guys. They were known as the two enforcers. There were other guys that would come in that would spend some time. Billy Robinson was one. I think Dick Murdoch even beat the shit out of a few guys, which we've heard about. So this is where this, this is what's unusual. If you look at the advertisements that are in the programs, there was no Eddie Graham school. There were two schools that were listed. There were, uh, yeah, there were two. One was uh, Professor Boris Malenko, the great Malenko at a wrestling school. I can guarantee he wasn't working with Eddie Graham at that stage when these ads started appearing. Malenko had his last match in December of 1975. He had a falling out with Eddie and never worked for the promotion. He ran opposition. He worked opposition. There is no way that he would have continued to have a relationship with Eddie Graham. It's not. It just. Well, let, let, let me let me just sure. interrupt you right there. So if uh, Malenko has this great falling out with Eddie Graham, yep. how is Malenko's school being advertised in the CWF programs? Sure, because so, and this is interesting, I didn't fully understand this until about a year to two years ago. The program was run by, so the weekly wrestling program, you'd go in, you'd buy it for a quarter, 50 cents or a dollar. And uh, this was put out by a guy named Jerry Prater out of Cross City, Florida. And Jerry... Even though an employee of CWF, he was essentially the photographer. He did a lot of work with CWF throughout the years. He was running the arena program independently. And I don't know all the details, but there was a split that occurred with local promoters. There was just a lot. So, and I think Prater had remained good friends. Malenko was loved by a lot of people. So I think Prater had remained friends with him. So it is bizarre that it would continue, but that was through the friendship with Prater. I don't know if Malenko is paying for those ads or Prater gave it to him for free, but I can guarantee you Eddie Graham never advertised 
a wrestling school, being a his wrestling school in the programs. I'm not aware of Eddie ever having a uh, a wrestling school at any point. Now, with that, Hiro Matsuda did. And Hiro Matsuda was essentially Eddie's right-hand man for a number of years. He did have the Matsuda School of Wrestling. Obviously, the real famous story coming out of that is about Hiro breaking Hulk Hogan's leg. We've heard, I think, four or five different versions of the story. Who knows the truth at this point? Conceivably, it 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 is possible that these were students of Matsuda that he then brought to the sportatorium and hence Eddie Graham beating the shit out of a lot of these people and stretching them. Hard to say. The video that's out there, and there is a video which you and I have gone through and we've discussed. We had Roop on years ago and we talked about it. There is a guy that comes in and Bob Root essentially beats the snot out of the guy and the guy gets out of the ring and Bob is like still going after the guy. And I believe as Bob told us, he ran out through the front door and like got in a car and just got the hell out and never came back. You remember that video that I'm talking about? Oh yeah. No, I, I know. Exactly so if you that. look at that video, what's interesting about it, the guy is wearing professional wrestling trunks. So he's not wearing a bathing suit or a pair of shorts. He's got a, a pattern of uh, it's their, their, their pro wrestling trunks. So, I think, but, and I'm not, I don't remember this, but I, I think Bob mentioned that this guy had been a student of Ronnie Hill. And Ronnie Hill was, again, another interesting story. Ronnie Hill was a guy that had a falling out with Eddie Graham. Eddie Graham blacklisted him from working. Ronnie opened up his own wrestling school. The Golden Gladiator would actually do small independent shows. And then Eddie actually beat him up one night, which I heard about. And then there was a second incident, which had occurred years later after Eddie had lost, uh, after he had lost his, his battle with uh, depression, et cetera, and committed suicide where Eddie was, I'm sorry, Ronnie was a guest on the late Ted Webb's radio show. They were doing it. It was a live remote at some bar or nightclub or something. Mike Graham was driving, heard this guy come on and talk shit, drove here and beat, beat up Ronnie Hill on air. And apparently this was a true story. So that's interesting. So it, the reason I bring all this up is it makes me wonder if the ad in the program story has been uh, massaged a bit and uh, embellished a bit, excuse me, and embellished a bit. Uh, that was, uh, that was, uh, Eddie Graham on the, uh, yeah. <laughs> he wants to comment on it. He's, he's going to kind of comment. Our, he's going to kick both our asses. About he it. is going to kick, he's coming back and he's going to kick both our asses. But long story short, I, as we know with professional wrestling stories, even if they're true, they can take on a life of their own and, and certainly fictitious story take on a life of their own and they become known as fact down the road. Again, I don't know. I'm not sold on the fact that these were people answering ads in the program. If they were, my assumption is it went to Matsuda. Matsuda brought him to the sportatorium, and there you go. But, again, Eddie Graham never had, quote, unquote, a wrestling school. So, Well, that's not really what I was uh, implying. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay. No, uh, what, I guess my question was, uh, if Eddie has this falling out with Malenko, Sure. And, uh, you know, okay. He reaches out to Prater. Hey, can I put this ad in your, uh, you know, your program? Sure. Well, Eddie's still running CWF. Doesn't Eddie have the ability to, you know, call Jerry Prater and say, what the hell are you doing putting this guy's ad, uh, in your program for my, my, you know, my promotion? You're essentially giving this guy publicity. I mean, you see the angle I'm, I'm looking at? Yeah, yeah. No, and that, and, and that's actually a great point. I have to tell you without knowing this for a fact, my gut says that that conversation occurred at some point because those ads for Malenko were still there uh, years later. So it, that I would assume that. But again, the relationship between Prater, I, I thought before I knew any of this, I thought that Eddie had 100 percent complete control over the program and all of its editorial content. And I, I do believe that was not the case. And I think there were times where that was a, uh, an issue between the two of them. So yeah. And it, yeah, it, I agree. It doesn't really seem to make a lot of sense, but this falling out was between Malenko and Eddie Graham was legit. Malenko apparently was blackballed 
throughout the NWA, wound up going up to Knoxville and working for uh, Ron Fuller in Knoxville. We know the rest of the story at that point and what happens there that, you know, he does. And then he really was blackballed the rest of his career. But, yeah, it's interesting. It's just one of those things we may never know. However, we do. This is a great question, Jeff. If you can remember this or anybody listening, Jody Simon, Jody Malenko, is opening up CWF Legends Fan Fest, which is right around the corner at this stage. Uh, it's coming up, I believe, this weekend, Jeff, the way that we're doing the, the this recording. So I believe it's this upcoming Saturday. This is a great question to ask Jody Malenko. And I, I think uh, if you can remember it, Jeff, my memory won't allow me to remember it. If you can re- remember, I, this is one I think has to be asked. Yeah. So I thought of another question for uh, for us to ponder here. Okay. Parents. It came to me the other day. I'm driving around in the car, and I started thinking about wrestlers that we know, and this does not have to be uh, exclusive to CWF, to the 60s, the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, or the the noughts. Is that what they call it, the 2000s, the, the noughts? Uh, however, tell me a wrestler that you think they may have gotten over to a certain extent, uh, whether it was their, uh, you know, uh, their gimmick, their personality, their charisma, their wrestling ability, they got over. But you always said to yourself, you know, that guy's, he's good, but he's never got quite to the point that I thought he was going to get to. And to counter that, how about somebody who you sit there and you think to yourself, this guy, he got way more out of the sum of his parts than he probably should have. Well, the second one, I, I came up with uh, three guys right off the top of my head. So the second one is a little bit easier. And the second one for me, and I'm, I'll probably get some hate off of this one, was the Honky Tonk Man. And I uh, I know he's like longest reigning intercontinental champion, etc. I know you want to hear the Honky Tonk Man sing. If you remember when the Honky Tonk Man first came to the Federation as well, he came in as a baby face and he was so rejected, they had no choice but <laughs> they to hated turn him. him. <laughs> they hated him. Uh, it was kind of like Dwayne Johnson, right? Uh, yeah, Cabana, yeah, very similar. But the Honky Tonk Man came in and they turned him heel. And then he went on this incredible like year and a half run of, of being the uh, intercontinental champion. I and this, you know, I was just I never. I never truly got him. I never thought he was having good matches. I, I just, for whatever reason, it never seemed to work. Uh, I'm assuming I was way off base because if they're leaving this guy as the champion for a year and a half, I have to assume he was doing something right. But uh, Honky Tonk Man to me was a guy that I always felt was uh, right place, right time. Maybe politically knew what he was doing. I was just never a fan and I just never thought he was that good. Guys that never reached their potential that probably should have or been bigger stars. I'll go, and I know that we've brought this up too, at his peak, Joe LaDuke should have been the biggest heel in the country. And whether that was NWA, WWWF, both, when Joe LaDuke was at his peak as a heel, I'm hard-pressed to think that he couldn't have been a top star anywhere in the country. And it's one thing to be a top star in Memphis, another thing to be a top star in Florida. But when you're selling out Madison Square Garden or the Philadelphia Spectrum or any of the big arenas that even the NWA and Crockett might have had, though I guess at that stage – Mid Atlantic, still early eighties. Joe LaDuke still very, very, you know, a heavy hand at that point. I think he could have been a much, much, much bigger star. Everything I got, Joe LaDuke didn't, didn't really care. Joe LaDuke wanted to be happy. He liked doing what he was doing and he was happy. So yeah. So here's the names that I came up with. Guys that were greater than the sum of their parts. Okay. Jerry Lawler. To this day, 50 years after he uh, stink and started in the wrestling business, is still a name out there. He has a, a great mind for the business. He has a great, uh, great promo abilities. No one ever accused Jerry Lawler of being a great quote unquote wrestler. He doesn't have any sort of physical, uh, you know, look to him that that screams badass uh, or pro wrestler. 
This guy made himself a star and maybe some would say at a local level, but he also, you know, ended up in, uh, in the Federation, uh, whether it was as a, uh, a performer or as a, just as an announcer, but he made himself a huge deal just off of his quick wit, his, his mind and his mouth. And I, I think he's greater than the sum of his parts. The other guy that I came up with, uh, in this category was Chris Candido. Uh, Chris Candido was to be kind five, seven, uh, uh, you know, I'm, I think I'm being kind of generous here, you know, and, uh, was a, uh, was a big star in Smoky Mountain, was a, was a big deal in ECW, got himself into the Federation where I think his size really worked against him. Uh, but still, uh, you know, he had a nice little run, uh, had a very unfortunate, uh, demise. But I, I think the career that he made himself based on his physical limitations, I, I think his career was a success. What do you think about that one? Yeah, Chris Candido is great too. And I, I think you could say, <sighs> you could probably pull up a lot of the smaller guys. Yeah, like Eddie Gilbert. Yeah, exactly. Like that, you know. I, and Eddie Gilbert's another one. And Eddie Gilbert too is, uh, you know, that, and that's one that's polarizing in a lot of ways because he's a hardcore favorite but the truth is when was eddie gilbert primed to be a main event talent in a main in a big company in the major leagues could eddie grant eddie grant could eddie gilbert have main evented whether as a heel or a babyface in either the nwa or the federation i don't know about that so, uh, and, and you know, as, as you were talking, I came up with another name, uh, that might be the best example, even better oh. than Lawler Candido or Eddie Gilbert. And that's Kichi Yamada, you know, yeah. Jushin, Jushin Liger. The, the guy's essentially like about five foot four, maybe. And the fact that he is regarded by some as the greatest junior heavyweight uh, of all time, an, an incredibly influential talent in the ring, uh, a guy that was incredibly influential in the dressing room. Uh, for bringing guys from Mexico and from all these different countries that maybe would have never gotten the exposure that they got except for, you know, the, the influence of Kichi Yamada, Jushin Liger. Uh, so I think that's a guy that definitely needs to be, uh, considered in that also. So other side of the coin, guys that never quite reached the potential that they had getting started in the wrestling business. The first one that came to mind and this is something that it will probably, uh, people will, when I first say it, kind of go, what are you talking about? But to me, Bam Bam Bigelow should have been a much bigger deal than he actually was. And I quantify that by saying he ended up being a, a, you know, a big star in the wrestling business. Okay. But when Bam Bam Bigelow first hit the wrestling scene, I want to say late 85, early 86, somewhere around that time frame. Uh, where, uh, Larry Sharp brings him to Memphis and here's this guy that weighs 400 pounds that has a, you know, his skull has a, a flame tattooed, uh, on it. Uh, the guy could do cartwheels and you just thought to yourself, Oh my God, this guy's going to be the biggest star in the wrestling business. And did he become a success in the wrestling business? Yes. He, uh, had a nice run in New Japan. He had the big match, uh, high-profile match with Lawrence Taylor at WrestleMania. But to me, he never ended up becoming what I think people thought he was going to be when he first debuted in Memphis. And I'll tell you, uh, as I was thinking about him, what came to my mind is what Leon White became as Vader and how big he was as Vader. That's what Bam Bam Bigelow should have been. Barry, what do you think? Am I wrong or right? No, you're hundred percent right too. And that's Check. Bam 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 is a uh that that's probably the best example because he and we've talked about that. He he absolutely should have been a much bigger star than he was because he had everything going for him. And I, I think partly it, it was political. It sounds like he wasn't in any, you know, any of the big playing factions that were taking place at the time. But yeah, that's I think Bigelow is a great example. Barry, now that we've wrapped up this episode, going for the old go home, I am getting ready with the sainted Mrs. Bowdrin to uh, begin to make our way down to Lutz uh, in a couple oh. of days. Looking forward to seeing all of you down there, uh, discussing all the different issues, uh, dealing with Penzer, no doubt being cheap about one thing or another. I'm not sure. going to specify what, but I'm sure there'll be something. Uh, and he, uh, 
He will be at the table, much like the guy you told us about recently, Barry, counting the money. He will be at the table counting the money. I got to say, too, with that story, I have backed off a little bit, but I am ready to go full nuclear and share even more information. And, Jeff, maybe we'll do that next week, maybe the week after, but there's more to that story, and I am ready to spill my guts. That is what we call a tease, and Barry is nothing if not a tease. I'm not going to say what kind of tease, but on that note, I will just say that I am Jeff Bowden. Sometimes they call me the booker. Good night, Gunny. I'll see you in the morning. My co-host, Barry Rose, our producer, Sweet Lou Kippelman, out in the city by the bay. And until next week, from Lutz, take the ship into port, Lutz. Breaking Kayfabe with Baldrin and Barry is a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network.